gather back together. We'll pray together and get into John 10. So, John chapter 10 tonight. John chapter 10. And there was a quiet that came over the crowd. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the joy of fellowship and relationship and being able to be the body of Christ. And Lord, we come together rejoicing that you're our good shepherd. And Jesus, we are in such good care in your hand. We pray tonight that you would touch our hearts once again, deepen our understanding of how much you love us. Please pour out your spirit upon our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been studying the Gospel of John, it really centers in around seven miracles. So you think of the other Gospels that highlights many miracles. The Gospel of John just records seven, and it also centers in seven I am statements. And the I am statements that we've studied so far is that Jesus said, I'm the bread of life and the light of the world. And tonight we're going to study two more. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and he says, I am the door. John also told us the reason that he wrote the book is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and through believing, we would have life through his name. So first, that we would be convinced that Jesus is God in human flesh, and then the second is, is that we would experience life, eternal life, but also life abundantly as well in our lives right now. So this is a great chapter. It's one of my favorites. Let's look in verse 1 of chapter 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So when Jesus introduces himself as the good shepherd, first he warns us about who's not the shepherd. And when sheep would be contained as they were in a city, what you would have is you would have a common pen with a wall with three or four feet high, and then the shepherds would come in in the morning and they would call their sheep. So if anybody didn't come through the door into this pen, they were obviously a thief and they were obviously a robber. So we know that that thief and that robber is Satan, and he's never going to come through the door. And we'll see in just a few moments that the door is Jesus Christ. So he's warning us to pay attention of who the thief and the robber is. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So it seems very obvious, but the shepherd of the sheep is going to come through the appropriate place. And we think about this even in our own family. Family comes through the door, don't they? And normally the garage door. If you've got a garage door, you, if you're family or a close friend, you come through the, the garage door. You know, if maybe you're a casual friend, you might be using the front door. But if a real comfortable friend, you can see the mess in the garage. So family comes through the door, right? But how does a robber come in? A robber's going to come in by some other way because they're not welcome to come in. And that, that's, Jesus is the shepherd, so he's going to come through the door. And we need to be aware of false teaching and wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus taught us that. And one of the ways that you can look for a false teacher is what's their attitude towards Jesus? You know, is Jesus kind of, well, that's great that you believe in Jesus, but there's really something more. There's a deeper doctrine for you. Well, they're very cleverly undermining Jesus, and that should ring a bell. A good shepherd is going to use the door. Jesus is the door. And so if they're minimizing Jesus Christ, then that's something to pay attention to. Also, if someone is 
diminishing and minimizing church leadership, that's something to ring a bell. If the church leadership is biblical, if they're not biblical, then that is something else. But if you find somebody that, that's coming in and saying, well, you know, you're pastors, you know, you shouldn't really, and you know, this, this leader of women's ministry over here, you know, I don't know about her, and the children's ministry director, and all this kind of thing, and, and you know in your heart and your mind, hey, they're biblical, they're following the Lord, then that should ring a bell as well. So a thief, a robber, he's not going to come in by the door, but the shepherd will. We look at verse 3. It says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own and the sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So what we find here is the relationship that the shepherd has with the sheep. And first, it's the care of the shepherd. He comes in, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls the sheep by name, and they lead him out. So this is how it would look in the Middle East, is the shepherd would come, it's this common pin, and the sheep, they know their shepherd. So the shepherd calls out their name, and all of the sheep are gathered to them. This is an amazing thing. When we look at sheep, we know that they're not the most intelligent animals in the world, right? You think of all of the animals that have prey, like a mountain lion has prey. All that a sheep is, is prey. That, that's all a sheep is. I mean, they, they don't get to prey on anything but grass, right? And they're these plumpy, fluff, woolly things that get eaten up. And a sheep is completely dependent upon the shepherd for everything, for protection, for food, for all of those things. But what does a sheep do well is they listen. They know the voice of the shepherd, and there is relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. So we see this care of the shepherd where he knows them, and he calls them by name, and they recognize his voice. For just a moment, stop and think about that God is your shepherd, that Jesus is your shepherd, and he knows you. He knows you by name. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 2, it tells us to those that overcome, God is going to give us a new name that only he knows. So that's how close that God is to us, that he's even got a special name picked out for us. And that does imply close relationship, right? With your kids, you have a special name that you call your kids that nobody else calls them. And I've heard as they grow into adulthood, they don't appreciate when you call them that name in public, right? And those, those kind of things. But there's this intimacy with God where God has a name that's specifically picked out for us. He knows the number of hairs upon our head. His thoughts towards us are more than the sands of the sea. And this is the loving care of the shepherd is that he knows us and he, he cares for us and he calls us by name and then he leads them out. And we give this picture of Jesus being our good shepherd that leads us out and he goes before us and where he leads us is good. And this takes us back to Psalms 23, doesn't it? Where the shepherd brings the sheep to still waters, to green pastures, to a table that's prepared before the presence of their enemies. So we have to trust this, and we've got to know this, that God knows us, and that he's leading us, and that he's leading us to good places. And sometimes it doesn't always feel like it, and it's not always physical green pastures. It's spiritual. It's green pastures with the Lord. It's deeper understanding of who he is. It's being able to have peace in the midst of trial. So if you can picture it in your life tonight that you have a shepherd 
that's leading you, that's out in front of you. And he brings them out in verse four, his own sheep, and he goes before them. What's the leadership that we see in the world, an unbelieving world? It's that we drive people. That's the way leaders do it in the world. We're, we're going to push you, push you, and drive you, and push you, and cattle you, and, and herd you. And, but that's not Jesus. Jesus goes in front of us, and he leads us. He says, oh, this is where it's good. This is where the green pasture is. I've gone before you. And we look, continuing in verse 4, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So now we have our response to the shepherd. First, it's what the shepherd does for us and his care for us. He knows us, he leads us, he owns us, we belong to him. And our response then is we know his voice. He, we recognize his voice. This is so important for us as the children of God. Do you recognize the voice of God? in his word. Maybe you're saying, how does God speak to me? I always hear people saying, well, God spoke to me. How does, how does God speak to me? He speaks to us through his word. And as we read his word, it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto your path. And I hope that we've all had this experience where we're in the word and there's a verse, there's a concept, there's a understanding. We go, God, that's exactly what I needed to hear for today. And it doesn't always happen. You know, it's not that every day you get that amazing epiphany, but there should be those times where we are able to look back and go, over a life of being consistent in the word, oh God, you really spoke to me. That this week as we were going through the, these trials, I was reading Acts in my normal devotion time, and Paul's going through the storm there, and I'm reading it, and God had instruction for the storm. Very simple. God had instruction for how Paul was to get through this shipwreck. And that ministered to my heart that God's got instruction for us as a family, how we're going to get through this storm. It was very simple, but I heard my shepherd's voice. And we need that more than anything else. We need to be able to hear his voice through the word of God. Try it. Commit to it. It comes through a consistent life in the word, and God will be faithful to speak to you through his words. Sometimes it happens in a Bible study like this where we're going through a whole entire chapter, but there's one concept, there's a couple of words, there's one verse, and the Holy Spirit's saying, that's for you. That's what you need to hold on to. That's the voice of your shepherd. Sometimes it's in worship, and there'll be a particular song. Maybe it happened tonight, and there was a lyric inside of one song where God spoke to you and gave you direction, and that's from him. So the primary way that God speaks to us is through his word, but he also speaks to us through a still small voice. And Elijah experienced that from the Lord, and it is secondary. You can never take that still small voice of God speaking to your heart and put it with supremacy over God's word, because if we do that, then we're putting our personal experience above God's word, and our emotions can mess us up. So if I think I heard this from God, and it doesn't line up with the word of God, then I misheard God. Does that make sense? But there are those times where God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit, still small voice in our hearts, and it lines up with the word of God. So we need to have those spiritual ears of hearing his voice. That's the key to this relationship, as I'm, I'm hearing his voice in his word. I'm hearing his voice in my heart if it lines up with the word of God. So we hear his voice and then follow. This is what the sheep are good at. They're not the most intelligent. They're great food. 
They, they provide warmth for others, but what the sheep had going for them is they knew the voice of the shepherd and they followed it. And it's not rocket science for us. We get in the word of God and this is the voice of our loving shepherd. So this is what he's telling me to do. Love my neighbor as I love myself. Okay, I get that message. I may not like it, but I need to do it. That's what my shepherd's telling me to do. I'm going to do it. And that's our marching orders. And as we follow the Lord, then we can be led into those green pastures. They also reject the voice of strangers. They reject the voice of the false teacher. They knew that, oh, this isn't my shepherd. And we need to be able to have those spiritual discerning ears where we can go, this isn't the Lord. It doesn't line up with the word of God. This isn't congruent with who I know Jesus to be. In verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but they didn't understand the things which he spoke to them. You ever, in a Bible study, you're like, man, I just don't get it. I don't understand. And this, to me, seems like a fairly simple one, doesn't it to you? That Jesus is the shepherd, we're the sheep, but they're sitting there going, what is he talking about? You're like, sheep and shepherd? Like, who's the sheep and who's the shepherd? Am I the shepherd? And they don't understand. In verse 7, then Jesus said to them again, and you might want to circle or underline that word again, because God in his love and his grace and compassion is willing to teach them the truth again. He doesn't say, oh, you, you dumb sheep, you know, you bunch of idiots. Why don't you get that? You know, it's so simple. It's in Psalms 23. None of that. He just lovingly says it again. Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So here we have Another I am statement, our third I am statement. Remember back to Exodus where Moses is being called by God to go back to Egypt to confront the Pharaoh. And he wants to know the name of God. And God says, I am that I am. This statement of the sufficiency and the magnitude of God. But there's a blank that's left out, right? I am what? And here Jesus fills in the what by saying, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world. If you were Jewish and you were hearing this, you would understand that this is a claim to deity. People didn't go around saying, I am the great I am. I am that I am. I am the door. And so by Christ saying this, he's claiming deity, and he says he's the door of the sheep. So not only is he the shepherd, but he is that door, that access point into the fold. So it's only through Jesus. He is the door. Jesus doesn't say, I'm a door. He says, I'm the door. He's the only point of entrance into the family of God. And anytime somebody tries to enter into the family of God by something other than Jesus Christ, then they've missed the whole entire point. So Jesus is the door for salvation, but he's also the door in life. In Revelation 3, verse 7, it says, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And that's the words of Jesus. He's saying, I open doors that no one can close and I close doors that no one can open. When I'm praying for God's direction and guidance in my life, I'm really comforted by this truth that he's the door. And I pray prayers like this. God, you know, I'm pretty thick-headed. So would you please open a door that nobody can close and just make it really evident that this is you. And if you don't want me to do this, please close the door so tight that I can't <clears throat> break it open. I may want it really bad. You know, this is something I desire, but if it's not something that you desire, then just close the door that no one will open. So he's the door for salvation, but he's also the door for situations in our life. If that car just won't work out and you really want the car, 
trust Jesus the door that he's got a better car in mind for you. If that house just doesn't work out and you've tried everything that you can possibly think of, accept the will of God in that situation. If that relationship just didn't work out, trust the Lord. You'll run into them in 10 or 15 years and you'll be on your face before God thanking God that you didn't marry them. (laughs) But at this point, it's a real heartbreak, right? And you're like, oh, I'm so sad about this relationship. So we want to knock on doors. We want to see if it's the Lord's will, but trust that he does open and close doors. In verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So the sheep could tell who was the thief, who was the robber, and who was the shepherd. In verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So those that come through Jesus, they find salvation first, and they also go in and out and find pasture. This is part of salvation. This is what God provides in salvation, eternal life with him, but also that he's going to spiritually feed us and take care of us through our journey until we get to heaven. It's like a kid graduating from high school and a dad saying, hey, I bought you a brand new car. Here you go. And the kid's like, well, it's a little low on gas and I'm a little low on money, so would you please provide some gas? And the dad's like, no way. I'm not providing you any gas. No, the dad's like, hey, I provided the car. I'm gonna provide a taking gas too. And God has provided salvation. He's gonna provide spiritual feeding. And don't misunderstand when it says find pastures. Jesus isn't promising an easy life, but he's promising to meet us in the midst of the challenges of life and the difficulties of life. This is a key verse. This is a life verse. It's one to underline and know. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. So this is what Satan does, his mission. He's got one mission. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy. The thing about Satan, though, is he never just shows up in red pajamas with a pitchfork saying, I'm Satan, and I'm here to kill you. I'm here to wreck your marriage. I'm here to do this. I'm here to make you hate the church and hate Jesus and never want to put your foot back inside of the church. He never does that. He comes as an angel of light. He disguises himself to where he makes sin look good and he makes it look pleasurable, makes it something that you'll desire. And we need to remember that if Satan's behind something, if it's something that God has warned us in his word not to do, then it's going to lead to our destruction. It's going to kill. It's going to rob. It's going to destroy. He's the father of lies. But here's Christ's mission. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus didn't come so that we would suck on lemonades, you know, or lemons or whatever you want to call it, right? He didn't come so that we'd just be sour-faced and and depressed and all those things. He came so that we would be able to experience life and to experience to the fullest, that you'd have life and you'd have it more abundantly. I think as believers, as children of God, we should be experiencing life to the fullest. Agreed? This is why. Like, if you have the opportunity to go snowboarding this winter, we should enjoy that because we know the Creator 
of the mountains and the creator of the snow and he gave us this wonder white playland to play in and we should be up there worshiping God as we're on the chairlift telling other people about the joy of our king. We should be enjoying marriage more than anybody else because we know that it's a gift from God. We should be able to experience the blessings that come inside with our children because of the goodness of God. If you're single, to be able to experience the joy of singleness more than anybody else because of the goodness of God. He came to give us life, and he came to give it more abundantly. But again, it's not an easy life. Following Christ isn't easy, but it's an abundant life. It's, oh, this is worthwhile. This is, even the battles, this is the exact battle that I'm in. This is important to me because for some reason, I think it's a message that doesn't get out very well. A lot of times people think that, well, I guess becoming a Christian, I'm just going to have to reside myself to the fact that I'm never going to have fun again. And, you know, this personality that I have, I guess, I don't know where that really fits in church. So I guess there's no place for my personality around here. And man, no, that's not it at all. You get to follow Christ, and inside of following Christ, it's the greatest adventure. It's the the greatest joy that could possibly come. He came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. There's no better life than following Jesus Christ. Agreed? In verse 11, this is the source of the life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So it's not that Jesus is saying, I came for you to have life abundantly, so you're going to have tons of money that everything's going to go your way. He's saying, I came to give you life abundantly, and you experience abundant life because I died for your sins. Because Jesus laid down his life for us as the good shepherd, we have abundant life. The abundant life is found in him. I am the good shepherd. This fourth I am statement in the gospel of John. I am the good shepherd. So by the fact that he says he's the good shepherd— means that there's evil shepherds, that there's bad shepherds. You're going to give your life over to some kind of guidance. It's going to be the guidance of yourself. It's going to be the guidance of the world. Some people give their lives over the guidance of Satan. It leads to destruction. But Jesus is the good shepherd. He cares for us. He watches over us. He protects us. And he displays his goodness here. And he says, he gives his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for us so we can trust as he calls us and says, Eric, this is good. Well, it doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. Sheep by nature are scared little creatures, aren't they? And we can be scared little creatures and it's difficult for us to trust. We can know that God is good. He's displayed it for us. The first man to actually ever go under anesthesia was a doctor, was a surgeon. It was back in 1925 and he had been propagating for a long time. When there's an appendicitis, by using this anesthetic, this local anesthetic, it'd be much better for the patient, but no one would agree to be the patient. Like, no one had ever done that before, so it's like, I'm not doing that. So finally, he had an appendicitis, and he agreed to be the patient, and was the first one to go under anesthesia. And the shepherd became the one who suffered so that we would trust the shepherd. And people trusted that doctor after that point because he says, I've gone through this. I've already done this. And Jesus paid the ultimate price for us in salvation so that when he leads us, we can say, oh, I can trust that. 
you laid down your life for me. In verse 12, but a hireling, he is, he who is not the shepherd, one who doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. So a shepherd has ownership. He owns these sheep, and he'll lay down his life for the sheep. But a guy that's a hired hand, here comes the pack of wolves, and he's, you know, I'm out of here. What does it matter if all of these sheep get eaten? Because all I miss out on is my job or my paycheck, but I'm not going to lay down my life. So that's why we know that Jesus is the good shepherd is because he doesn't flee when there's danger. He lays down his life for us to not only protect us, but to provide salvation. You've probably noticed there's a big difference between ownership and taking care of something that belongs to somebody else, right? And there's actually some joy in renting, isn't there? You know, if you've got an apartment and something breaks, it's like call the dude up and you're like, hey, time to fix this, right? When you own a house, I remember when we bought our first house, we were like three days into it, and I turned to my wife, and I said, I do not like being a homeowner. It was an extreme fixer-upper, and she's like, well, you should have thought about that before you signed our lives away for 30 years, right? But there's a huge difference between ownership and taking care of something that belongs to somebody else. When I got my driver's license and I was 16, I've got to report to you, I didn't take very good care of the Ford Taurus, the family station wagon. You know, it was like, I pushed that thing to some limits that that old Taurus should have never been pushed to, right? And then you get your first car that you work for, that you paid for, it's your pennies, it's your dimes, and you're like, this sucker's going to the car wash, you know? There's a huge difference between ownership and taking care of something that belongs to something else. And what is being expressed here is you're so much loved by God, by Jesus, that he died for you to own you, and you belong to him. And so when there's something that comes that's threatening your life and threatening your existence or a false doctrine, Jesus gets passionate in his protection for his people. In verse 14, again, Jesus expresses, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known, and, and known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. And so Jesus is expressing that the way that he knows us is similar to how the Father knows him. It's the deepest possible knowledge. God knows you better than you know yourself, better than I know myself. In verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. So God's expressing to the disciples it's not just you and no more. It's, not, it's just not the holy huddle. It's not that Jesus just loved these 12 disciples, but he's saying, I've got people that are going to hear my voice, and they're going to be part of the fold as well. And that's what Jesus is doing tonight. That's what he's doing today. That's what he's doing every day as he's calling people to himself. And he's expressing his love to them, opening up their eyes. And when they see who Jesus is, then they become part of one flock. Again, Possibly underline this in your Bible. One flock. The body of Christ is not divided. Believers in Jesus Christ are one body. If they know Christ as their Savior and they follow Christ as their Savior, and we're blessed because there's a lot of wonderful churches in Colorado Springs. 
we have this pastor's lunch that happens four or five times a year. Pastors get together throughout the city and pray for one another. And one of those was today, and it was a great time of fellowship. Most Wednesdays, I go over to Grace Bible Church and pray with Jeff Anderson and a small group of pastors that come from our city. And we pray for the, the body of Christ as a whole. And I hope you know that, that we're one flock. You know, it's not just the Rocky Mountain Calvary family, but it's the other churches in town that are true churches that love Christ, that are committed to his word. And we're blessed in our city to have a lot of churches that are committed to Christ and committed to his word. And so that's when, if God calls somebody to another fellowship, I don't get overly worried or concerned or call them and like, hey, what are you doing leaving Rocky Mountain Calvary? Because they haven't left the fold. What concerns me is if they go nowhere, you know, if they stop going to church at all and they drop out of fellowship. But if they go to another church in town that loves the Lord, that teaches the word, I'm like, praise the Lord. They're, it's one flock. It's one family. You know, sometimes people wonder, why don't we have membership at Rocky Mountain Calvary? Like, we don't have official membership here. Why is that? Because we want ourselves to associate that we're part of the body of Christ as a whole, not, not just one particular local f fellowship, but we're one flock and one family with, with one shepherd. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 17, Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. So the Father's pleased with the sacrifice of the Son. And then it's very clear in verse 17 that Jesus is going to lay down his life and take it up again. And we think about the cross and what Jesus did when he died upon the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He actually had the power to dismiss his spirit. When Christ raised from the dead, he rose himself from the dead three days later. He had power over the grave. Nobody took his life from him. This was evident when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he says that statement, I am, and they all fell on their backside. Just the powerful statement that he was God knocked them over on the backside. They didn't arrest Jesus. Jesus went with them willingly. He laid down his life and his love for us. In verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I received from the Father. Therefore, there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and he is mad. Why do you listen to him? And others say, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So as we've seen through our study of the gospel, there's a lot of division when it comes to Jesus. There's a lot of opinions when it comes to Jesus, and the same is true today. A lot of people are divided over Jesus Christ. You bring Jesus up at work, and there's going to be a division that takes place. You bring up Jesus in your family, there's going to be a division that takes place. Some will receive, and some will reject. Verse 22, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. You probably know this feast more as Hanukkah. This is still celebrated today in the Jewish community. It's also known the Feast of Dedication. It was celebrating the Maccabee Revolution when they revolted against Atticus Epiphany in 168 BC. And so that celebration continued. This is two months after the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus had last confronted the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Remember that from just a few chapters prior when Jesus came in at the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, now it's been two months and he's back in Jerusalem. 
And Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. The Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Jesus is saying, I've already told you I'm the Christ, and you didn't believe. I showed you by my works, and you didn't believe. Verse 26, but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. And as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So how do you know if people are in the fold? How do you know if they're the child of God? By whether they receive and believe and follow Jesus Christ. If they never respond to the voice of Jesus Christ, if they always harden their heart to Christ like these religious leaders, then they're not God's sheep. Doesn't matter how many times they tell you, I'm the child of God, I'm a sheep. And Jesus says, no, you guys are not my sheep because you haven't heard my voice. You haven't responded to my call. In verse 28, speaking to those who do respond to the voice of Christ. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This is great stuff. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and my Father are one. Tonight, part of the care of the Good Shepherd is you're in his hand. Jesus says, you're in my hand. And consider that for just a moment. What do we know about the hand of Jesus Christ? First, we know that his hand is the creator of the universe. Isaiah tells us that he holds the universe, the skies, in his hand. You can see about a thousand stars from your eye on a clear night out in the desert. With a telescope, you could see 3,000 Now with the mass major telescopes that we have, you can see billions of stars. We know that there's at least 100 billion galaxies. We don't even know how many galaxies they are. And all of that fits into God's hand. Feeling a little small all of a sudden? It all fits in his hand. We don't even know how big it is. And it fits into his hand. This hand that's so powerful also became so small to where it was incarnate, God in human flesh. God born in Bethlehem, placed in a manger. God in six pounds, seven pounds, eight pounds, grew to be a man who worked hard as a carpenter. This is back before Black and Decker and Makita and all these wonderful power tools and saws that we have. Imagine the hands of Jesus Christ as a carpenter. They were strong hands. These were the hands that when Peter fell into the Sea of Galilee during the storm because he took his eyes off of Jesus, it tells us that Jesus with one hand pulled Peter up. Jesus did the one-arm curl. Peter was a big fisherman. So God's hand is strong, it's rough, it's rugged, but it's also tender. The hand of Jesus is tender. This is the hands that loved children. This is the hands that said, let the little children come to me, that picked the kids up and threw him up and did some Johnny Johnny whoops on his lap and all of those kind of things. There's, there's a strength about God's hand, but there's a tenderness about Jesus' hand. But maybe the greatest thing about the hand of Christ that holds us tonight is the cross. He went to the cross for us. The hand that holds is the hand that bears the scars from the cross. And there's going to be something in heaven of this world 
we're going to have a glorified body. Jesus has a glorified body, but he chooses to keep something from this world. And you know what it is? It's the scars of the cross. So that we'll know and we'll understand for all of eternity what he went for. Thomas put his hands into the wounds of Christ. We're going to put our hands into the wounds of Christ. And so through the eyes of faith tonight, it's to know and understand that it's this hand that holds you. So you've got the hand of Jesus that's that's holding your very being and your existence and loving and caring for you. But then on top of it, you've got the hand of the Father. It's the double-handed grip. Feeling pretty secure in the care of your shepherd? This is a great place for us to be. To me, it's like walking a young child across a busy street. Say you're going on the crosswalk on Academy Boulevard, which could be life-threatening. It really could. But if you are walking a toddler across Academy Boulevard, the child may feel like, hey, I've got dad's hand. I'm holding dad's hand, and I'm being a good little boy or a good little girl, and might even sing a song about how strong they are, and they're such a great follower of dad and all these kind of things. But what's dad doing? Dad's got the death grip on the kid. And there is no chance that this kid is getting out. You're secure, you're right here, and we're going across. And we feel like we're holding on to God. You know, a lot of times we're like, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job on this whole Christian thing. I, I'm believing, I'm following, I'm at Wednesday night Bible study, I'm praying, and I'm holding on, you know. Woo! Maybe I'll even write a book on how to be a good follower of Christ and do all this stuff. And God's like, you turkey, I've got you. That's the reality of this equation is I've got a hold of you. So we're in good hands. We're secure in his hands. In verse 31, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. When he said that him and his father are one, that they're equal, he's saying that he's God, that he's God's son. They believed it to be blasphemy, and once again, they try to stone Jesus. Jesus answered and said, Many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? Hey, was it healing the blind guy or feeding the 5,000? Or which one of these good works are you stoning me for? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Verse 34, Jesus answered and said, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken— Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Jesus throws them a curveball here. You'll want to write this down. It's Psalms 82. But in Psalms 82, God is speaking to the judges, and he calls the judges gods, little g, small gods, because they had the power to decide life and death. He's not saying that you're a deity. He's not saying that you're God, but he's saying you've been entrusted with a lot of power. And so they were called gods, small g. And what Jesus is saying, if these judges were called gods, why do you have such a hard time believing that I am the son of God? And they can't answer that question. But the key to unlocking that is Psalms 82, and the judges were called God, small g. Verse 37, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. So Jesus is saying, look at the works that I've done. 
And if they testify of the Father, then believe in me. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. It wasn't the time or the method for Jesus Christ to be crucified, right? It was coming. It's coming soon in our study, but it wasn't the time appointed by the Father for him to die. And it had been prophesied in Psalms 22 of his crucifixion, and stoning didn't fit that. So Jesus again laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. Verse 40 to verse 42. Again, he went, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. There's a lot to learn from these last two verses. Do you ever wish, man, I wish God's power would flow through my life? And we see in the book of Acts, God using people to pray, and then God heals someone, and why don't I see that happening in and through my life? Now, if God wants to use you in that way, praise the Lord. But if he doesn't, you have something that you can do that John the Baptist did, and that is everything that you speak of Jesus, allow it to be true. John the Baptist did no miracle. He never did a miracle, but he was a man of faith. He was used by God because he loved to talk about Jesus. And everything that he said about Jesus was true. And to me, that's the greatest miracle. So we can take the ministry of John the Baptist and say, man, if God wants to work a miracle through my life and bring a healing, praise the Lord. I don't know if I'm going to ever see somebody come back to life. But I do know this, I can speak of Jesus. And everything that I speak of Jesus can be absolutely true. So a great encouragement for us to speak of Christ. Let's stand together and let's pray and let's enjoy our good shepherd this evening.